We continue our series today, Walk This Way, Walking with Jesus, and what we can learn about it from the New Testament. And we started in the Old, and we uh, saw in Micah chapter 6, 8, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with the Lord. And all through the series, we've looked at what humility looks like. And so here we are in chapter 16 of Acts, beginning in verse 16. As Paul, Silas, and Luke were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. In 1993, Charles Colson received the Templeton Prize for Religion. At the time, it was the most lucrative of all prizes, much greater than even the Nobel Peace Prize. It was a million dollars. The reason Sir John Templeton established this Templeton Foundation Fund for religion was because he said that in his opinion, religious inquiry was the most important inquiry that anyone could put their minds to. So in 1972, Charles Colson was the special counsel for President Richard Nixon former Marine. He was a graduate of Brown University. He also got a law degree from George Washington University, but none of that made him famous. In fact, even his office right next to the Oval Office didn't make him famous. What made him famous was Watergate. He was called Nixon's hatchet man. He famously said, I'd run over my grandmother for Richard Nixon. But it wasn't running over his grandmother that got him thrown into jail. It was obstruction of justice. And he went to prison for seven months. Weeks before he went to prison, he visited his friend Tom Phillips in, outside of Boston. Phillips was a CEO of Raytheon. They were college buddies at Brown. Colson writes about it. He said, we sat in Tom's living room for the longest time, and one of the things Tom asked me was, are you a Christian? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? Colson said, I had to be honest with him. I said, no. And then Tom looked at me and said, maybe prison is exactly where you need to go. Before I left that night, he gave me a copy of a book by C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. And as I began to read it, I began to discover that Jesus Christ is not only King and Lord, He became my King and Lord. Twenty years later, 
Charles Colson stood on the dais receiving that Templeton Award. You know what he said? He said, out of tragedy and great adversity come many blessings. I shudder to think what would have happened if I had not gone to prison. I shudder to think what would have happened if I hadn't gone to prison. About 70 years ago, a bishop of the Catholic Church named Madras went down to an obscure South American village to see a mission that the church had established there. And as he was en route, he heard about a little girl, 12 years old, who they called Child Apostle. And the reason they called her that was because she stood fearlessly in the face of opposition, standing firm for her faith. And so he looked forward all week to meeting this little girl, the child apostle, and then Friday came and she was brought to him and as soon as she, he saw her, he turned away. He began to weep because immediately he knew what had happened to her. Her face was disfigured. Her arms and legs were a mass of welts. He knew she had been brutalized for her allegiance to Jesus Christ as a 12-year-old. And so through his sobs, he said to her, My dear, how could you endure this? She looked him in the eye surprisingly and said, Bishop, do you too not wish to suffer for Christ? There's a scene in The Hiding Place. Corey Tenboom and her sister Betsy are in Raven's book, Prison Camp. Betsy's teaching a Bible study, and all of the women in that barracks are huddled together because it's cold and it's against the rules to talk about the Bible. But as Betsy begins to teach, a woman who isn't in that circle, who's off in a bed at the end of the barracks, cries out. Why did your God do this to me? She begins to unwrap the bandages on her mangled fingers and they're gangrenous and they're broken and they're being eaten away. She said, these hands used to be first violin in the Berlin Symphony Orchestra. Why did your God do this to me? For a moment, there's nothing but silence. And then Corey gets up and stands right next to her sister and says, we don't understand it. But what we do know is that God became a man and He suffered. And if it weren't for His suffering, we wouldn't know how much He loved us. Six weeks ago, we started this series, Walking with Jesus. We began in the Old Testament, Micah 6.8. We talked about the spirit of that walk. It's to humble yourself. And then we moved on to Acts, chapter 7, 8, and 9, and we saw elements of that walk. Stoning of Stephen, the blinding of Saul, the obedience of Ananias. We see in those accounts a variety of lessons about what it means to walk with Jesus. Then the last few weeks in Acts chapter 11, we got a picture of what walking with Jesus means by looking at the life of Barnabas. And then we looked at the Christians in Antioch. And today, we go to Philippi and we see two women 
Two women in this text that teach us a lot about what it means to walk with Jesus. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the direction. Look at verses 11 and 12. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samarath, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we remained in that city for some days. Now, remember what Lucas told us in previous chapters. We've talked about this before. He's an eyewitness to all of this. He's already told us that Paul did not want to go to Macedonia. He wanted to stay east of the Aegean Sea, go up into modern Turkey. They wanted to go there and share the gospel, and yet Luke says the Spirit of Jesus prevented them. So instead of heading east, they head west. They set sail across the Aegean Sea, and they come to a place of intense political pride. They come to Philippi, which is a leading city in the Roman Empire. It's called Rome in miniature. There's a Roman colony. There's a rule of Caesar and worship of Caesar there. There's a major courthouse there. There are a number of shrines to various gods there. And what we also learn about Philippi is there are hardly any Jews there. Hebrew law said that if there were ten Jewish men in a place, you had to form a synagogue. There's no synagogue. There's no place for worship there. So Luke says, Paul and Silas hear that down by the river there are some people engaged in prayer, and so they go down by the river. You know who those people are by the river? They're all women. Paul and Silas go down by the river to gather together in prayer with women. Do you know what a striking difference that is? That is a titanic shift for Paul. Fifteen years earlier, he would never have gone to that river. He was a Pharisee. He was a teacher of the law. He had grown up with scruples regarding women that were a mile long. No woman could testify in court. A woman's word was not trusted in that society. Jewish males were never to even speak to a woman or be caught dead with a woman outside of a home, let alone a Gentile woman. You know, many Pharisees, when they left the house, they would keep their eyes down so that their eyes would be diverted from seeing any woman. That's why there were a number of Pharisees called bleeding Pharisees, because they'd walk into the wall. Anything to avoid looking at a woman. Remember what the Jewish men used to pray? Oh Lord, thank you that you haven't made me a Gentile, a slave, a dog, or a woman. And yet when Paul gets to that river, Luke says he not only sees those women, he sits down and begins to speak with those women who are gathered there. I have a friend who says when a nut becomes a Christian, they become a nutty Christian. <laughs> I mean, when a chauvinist becomes a Christian, they become a Christian chauvinist. But not Paul. When the Holy Spirit begins to work in his life, he changes him. Not only does the Holy Spirit get Paul to Philippi, he gets him to that river. 
He is so in tune with the Spirit of God that he sits down and begins to speak with women. Do you see that almost everything that Paul believed about what it meant to be a godly man, the Holy Spirit has turned on its head? He followed the law. And now he follows Christ and all of his prejudices are evaporating. Second, notice not only the direction, notice the delivery. Look at verse 14. One of us was a, one of uh, those who heard was a woman named Lydia. She is from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. Do you know what the name Lydia means? Womanly. It's almost as if Luke is saying to us, if you haven't caught this yet, as he speaks, he speaks to a woman who begins to believe, and her name is Lydia, which means womanly. A woman believed. August 1st. 1943, in the evening, actually the wee hours of that day, there's one of the greatest naval accidents of World War II. It happened in the Blackett Straits in South Pacific. It wasn't an act of aggression. It really wasn't an act of war. It was actually a big mistake. Neither boat saw the other one coming. And there in the blackness of the Blackett Strait, that Japanese destroyer cut in half that little American boat. Years later, the commander of that boat that was cut in half was President of the United States. And a reporter asked John F. Kennedy, how is it that you became a naval hero? Kennedy said, it was involuntary. My boat was cut in half. I mean, that's exactly what Paul could say about being in Philippi. It's involuntary. I wanted to stay in Asia. But the Spirit of God took me to Macedonia. I wanted to be in a synagogue, but now I'm down by the river. I wanted to speak with men, but now I'm speaking to women. And you know what? It wasn't my persuasion that changed Lydia's heart. She embraced the gospel because the Holy Spirit propelled it into her life. You see, none of this is about Paul. He's simply a vessel. Look how she responds to the gospel. Now, she's a God-fearer. She believes in one God, and yet she doesn't know that Jesus is God, and that's what she comes to understand by the river. So look what she does. She's so overwhelmed... She and her household are baptized. Her mind, her heart, her wallet are opened up to others. She acts just like Zacchaeus. She invites strangers into her house. Why? Because her love for these strangers matches her love for her own household. And her home becomes an outpost for the gospel. Lydia's house becomes the place where the church in Philippi 
meets. And she begins to bankroll the work of the gospel. Third, notice the directive. Look at verse 18. So this slave girl kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And at that very hour, it came out. Now here's another woman. The first one's a God-fearer. The second one is a worshiper of idols and many gods. Now according to ancient historians, there was in Philippi a temple of Delphi. And it was said that there were a number of evil spirits who did amazing miracles there around that city. And this slave girl is caught up in it. Luke says she has a spirit of divination. She's a fortune teller. And it's interesting to me that what she says as she goes around following Paul and Silas and Luke is this, these men are servants of the Most High God. That's interesting how she describes God because it's exactly what that demonized man who lived in the caves in the tombs said when Jesus stepped on shore. Remember? What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? It's the same words, Most High God. Now on the face of it, it seems like what she's saying is true. They are servants of the Most High God. They are proclaiming the way of salvation, but there are two problems and Paul seizes on them. First of all, Paul knows that it's not the messengers that matter, it's the message. Did you know the temptation for every person who walks with Christ is to believe that they are what's important rather than the message they proclaim? Oh, you should come hear so-and-so. I just like the way they speak. It's not about the messenger, it's about the message. Paul knows that when you're walking with Jesus, unless the Holy Spirit is speaking through you, the message will, not, will fall on deaf ears. So that's the first problem. He knows he doesn't need any attention called to himself or the other two. But there's a greater problem, and that is this. Paul knows the gospel's not a religion. You see what Satan's trying to say through this young girl? He's trying to say to the people of Philippi, listen to what these men are saying because they are speaking of another God. Another path to salvation, as if there are many. This girl is associated with cults. Cults believed in numerous ways or paths to salvation. And Paul can't take it anymore. He's had enough. He knows that Jesus needs no PR person. He knows that the only way to true freedom is through Christ. So what does he do? He casts out the demon and he sets her free. And notice the reaction of her handlers. They are incensed. Why? Because she's their meal ticket. They have so bound her that they've profited from her binding. And what does Paul do? He speaks the Word of God and she is loosed. She becomes free and they become hostile. And then fourth and finally, notice the deliverance. Look at verse 23. 
And when they had inflicted many blows on them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Now think of the parallels between this jail and the cross. When Jesus is sent to the cross, there's the charge. He's a threat to Caesar. He's a threat to all that we hold dear. The same is true here. These men are disturbing the peace. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us to practice. In fact, what happens to Paul in that marketplace is exactly what God told Ananias would happen. I will show him how much he will suffer for my namesake. So let me ask you a question. If Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, why does Paul have to suffer? Does he have to suffer because something was incomplete on the cross? Is there something deficient in Jesus' suffering? Does Paul have to suffer so that Jesus' suffering is completed? No. He doesn't suffer to complete the suffering of the cross. He suffers to extend it. Do you see this? Just as Jesus suffered for the sake of Paul, Paul must suffer for the sake of the jailer. That's exactly what Charles Colson means when he says, I shudder to think what would have been if I had not gone to prison. He was already a Christian. He already trusted Christ. So what does he mean when he says, I would shudder to think what would have happened if I hadn't gone to prison. I would have continued to be a lawyer. I would have missed my call to start a prison ministry. I would have missed all the lessons God taught me. I don't think that's what he means. I think what he means, I shudder to think of all those prisoners who would never have heard the gospel if God hadn't locked me up. You see, Colson's concern is not for himself. It's for those that Jesus claims through all the twists and turns in his life. See, Colson came to learn that the heart, the heart of our walk with Jesus. You know what the heart of our walk with Jesus is? Jesus is not here to satisfy my wants. Jesus is here so that I might be used by him to satisfy his wants. Why does he put Paul and Silas in prison? Because he wants to free the jailer. If Paul had it his way, he would never have gone to Philippi. If Paul had it his way, he would have never gone down by the river. If Paul had it his way, he would never have spoken to Lydia. He would never have dealt with that slave girl. He would never have been in jail to speak to that jailer. If Paul had it his way, he would never have suffered. And you and I would never be able to see in this text the depth of the love and the freedom that comes in walking with Jesus. Walking with Him is all about being free, mostly from ourselves. We see it in Paul. We see it in Silas. We see it in Luke. We see it in Lydia. We even see it in that slave girl who went from total bondage to total freedom. It's Independence Day weekend. Can you think of a better time 
to think about Jesus. Amen.